get started. Hey, are you ready for a brand new book in the Old Testament, the book of Ezra? We're going to ask the Lord for his blessing as we gather our thoughts together. Let's do that. Now, Heavenly Father, we just acknowledge right away the word of God, the supernatural dynamic of this wonderful word that it's God-breathed. Lord, it doesn't have its origin in any man or human institution, but as the Bible says of itself, it is a a breath of God to show us the way to be saved. And so tonight, Lord, as we begin a new book, give us eyes that can see and ears that can hear and a heart that understands. In Christ's name, amen. So the Old Testament book of Ezra, a story of restoration after ruin. Now, Ezra is all about rebuilding all about rising up from the ashes and the rubble, watching God help his people start all over again with a new dream after a disaster. So Ezra is really timely, so wonderful for us who have been through the fires of Santa Rosa, 40 families from our fellowship, as you well know. And so it's a great time to take a look at a book that's all about hope and rebuilding and being inspired in that way. Um, It brings a lot of healing. And so we look forward to that. So God's message through Ezra really, uh, and you don't need to have lost your home or your possessions uh, to be able to have these truths be relevant and speak to your heart to encourage you because all of us have a need to be restored all the time because we live in a broken world. And, you know, I don't know if your relationship with God is like mine, but mine is kind of like two steps forward, three steps back. You know, um, it sometimes feels like you're building a house of cards, you know, in, in certain ways in your life. And then suddenly just with one move, bam, it all goes down again. And in some area, relationally, a struggle there, or vocationally, at work, or something inside your own heart and mind. Um, And so there's always a need to be built up, edified, where we get that word from edifice, from a building, to be built up. That's what the Holy Spirit does through his word and most uh, certainly through the book of Ezra. And so, you know, Ezra's real message is really, you, you know, to give us a hope, to give us a future. Now, what does that sound familiar? Does that sound a little bit like Jeremiah 29, 11? Well, I've got that verse up for a reason. <laughs> for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Why don't we all read together? You want to anyway. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Well, did you know that Ezra was written to show you the fulfillment of that very verse? The beautiful promise that most Christians know by heart 
And a favorite scripture is, is going to be referred to by Ezra in chapter 1 to tell you that the whole book of Ezra is linked to this verse to show you how God fulfilled this beautiful promise to Israel. So Israel had been conquered. The glorious temple that Solomon built, man, it took him seven years. Uh, it was leveled totally by the Babylonians. Everything reduced to rubble. People were taken into captivity, but God had given them a word through Jeremiah the prophet, a word of hope. And it was now time for us to see that, how that hope comes to pass. So let me t- show you what I'm talking about and dive into the book of Ezra chapter one. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, I will introduce all of these characters to you. In order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah in chapter 29, verses 10 and 11, the Lord moved the heart of this Persian king, King Cyrus, to make a proclamation throughout his realm. It's the then known world, man. It's, it's huge. To put this into writing. And here's the edict. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at at Jerusalem in Judah. Any one of his people among you, may his God be with him, that's a blessing, and let him go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. And the people of any place where survivors may now be living here in this region are to provide him who goes back to Jerusalem with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with freewill offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. So there, ladies and gentlemen, we are off and running. Look at you. You're in a new Old Testament book. We're going to study it verse by verse, chapter by chapter. So here we go. Now... Uh, With the introduction here, no need to panic. You have a Middle Eastern tour guide right here of Israeli descent. I'm going to help you here. So no panicking if you're feeling lost like King Cyrus, where are we? You know, it's been a while since we've been in the Old Testament back in the historical days, right? Back in the days of Nehemiah. So let me remind you the context. Here's a map of the region of the world. So as I talk, I'll refer to that. I'm a picture kind of guy. I like seeing what's going on here. So Israel, of course, had come up out of Goshen. Goshen's around here. They crossed over the Dead Sea here. They, They spent a long time in the wilderness going around in circles. And so up from being, having started as a family, they turned into a nation. Right? And so God led them up the, the, which is now modern-day Jordan. And right about in the middle, right here is where Jericho is. And they crossed in and they displaced the, the current then tenants called the Canaanites. And, and there they were. God said it was a land flowing with milk and honey. You're going to love this place. 
He prepared it for them. And uh, the wicked Canaanites were given 400 years to repent. And so God is the landowner, and he decides who gets to live where. And so he decided, you know what? Uh, I'm evicting the Canaanites. But he says there, as they're entering in, he says, don't think that you can go and ignore me, do your own thing, have your cake and eat it too, and, and rebel and be as wicked as those Canaanites. Because I'll evict you too, right? So you just can't just think, you know, I'm special. I can have my cake and eat it too, have God's blessing and do whatever I want. He says it, it doesn't work that way. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 15 says, don't even try it because you won't do well there. So after 700 years or so living in now, which is called Israel, here, right? Uh, God was very patient, but they were rebellious and, and, and worshiping idols and provoking him and disobeying him. And so God allows Iraq. Nebuchadnezzar lives over here in, in near Baghdad, right? And Nebuchadnezzar with an army finishes a job that started in around 730 BC. Uh, and, and phase two of that was to come in and, and sack Jerusalem, reduce Solomon's temple to rubble, and take some prisoner of war. Uh, so about 40,000 Jews, along with Daniel, Meshach, Shadrach, Abednego, they were in that sad captivity and taken away. The treasury of the, the temple of the Lord was taken. And so uh, Israel was just finished. Israel was a 200-mile strip of barren land by 70 miles wide. That's Israel. And it, and it was reduced to nothing, overgrown fields and everything. So, so God said, I'm going to put you on a timeout for 70 years. So the, this is what happened. Nebuchadnezzar came in, took the treasure, and, and, and every, the surviving members and all of that. And, and there's an artist's rendering of them it's called Flight of the Prisoners. And so, you know, they came in and just leveled the place. And, and they took 40,000 Jews uh, to modern-day Iraq. It's called the Babylonian Captivity. And God said through Jeremiah, this is what Jeremiah said. And it started, it started in Je Je chapter 25 of Jeremiah. He said, and I'm paraphrasing, I've been trying to get a hold of you guys for many years, centuries in fact. And so you keep trying my patience. This is through Jeremiah chapter 25. And he says, now sadly, some terrible times have to come to chastise you to get you back on track. It's not because I hate you, it's because I love you. And, and he goes on and he says in Jeremiah, there 29, finishing up the prophecy, you're going away as they're going away. Jeremiah is prophesying to them. As they're going away, he's saying, it'll be 70 years, but here we go, 29, 10, and 11. This is what the Lord says, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, but to give you a hope and a future. Did you know that that? Those blessings are tied to uh, them leaving and being judged and having to go through a terrible time. 
But now, go back to our verse, please. Now, check this out. He says, in the first year that this new guy is on the throne, his first priority is to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah the prophet in chapters 29, 10, and 11. And so this is just beautiful. Ezra begins. He says, uh, it's been 70 years, so it's time now for God to keep his promise. And it says in your text, it was in the first year of King Cyrus' reign that the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah uh, is now becoming, uh, coming into uh, fulfillment. So what, who is this king of Persia? Who is Cyrus? Well, this is the dude who took Nebuchadnezzar down. So Nebuchadnezzar was used by God to come in and chastise the Jews and take them away to, to Iraq. And now after 70 years, God said, and he said it through Jeremiah, I'm going to punish them for the atrocities they did. And I'm going to bring you back. And so the dude who overthrows Babylon is King Cyrus of Persia. So here's the Persian Empire. So this is really what Babylon also uh, ruled over. But King Cyrus is a Persian. He's an Iranian. So the Iranians take charge, not the Iraqis anymore. So Nebuchadnezzar is an Iraqi. This new guy, Cyrus, who God just raised up to put an end to Nebuchadnezzar, who did the dirty work. Now the guy who's going to bring them back is Cyrus. The interesting thing to me is God is using one pagan king to bring chastisement and take them to Babylon. And then he's using another pagan king, King Cyrus, who's Persian, to bring them back. So there's a lesson there. I'm going to talk about that. And so... God takes control, and this is why Cyrus is going to say, it is God who made me king of the earth. Take a look at his realm there. So, I mean, he had a lot of power, but God directed his thoughts like he does a stream of water, as it says in the Proverbs. So that's what's going on. Some beautiful insights already. We can go back to our verses. So already, <laughs> the first thing I want you to see is God keeps his promises. The good ones and the tough ones. See? And so, listen, I've got a great example of this in Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. Look at this. He says, don't be misled. You can't mock the justice of God. You will always harvest what you plant. Those who live only to satisfy their own sinful nature will harvest decay and death from that sinful nature. But those who live to please the Spirit will harvest everlasting life from the Spirit. So there are lots of promises about blessing. There are probably more about blessing than about bringing chastisement because God's heart is not to inflict pain and suffering. It's to bring healing and restoration and joy and peace. And so, but just, just seeing that God kept his promise uh, to uh, remove them from the land uh, for 70 years. And I, you can go back to the verses now. Can I throw this in for free? Why 70 years? Well, <laughs> it's amazing. But the book of Chronicles at the end tells us that for 490 years, Israel 
refused to let the land rest on the Sabbath year. Here's the deal. God said, I want you to show your trust in me by every seven years letting the land rest. Now, in the sixth year, no worries. I'm going to always give you a bumper crop. You'll have enough for two years there. Harvest it and then give the land a rest. And by doing that, you're going to show that you trust, you're obeying me, and you trust in the Lord. They refused to do it. Oh, they take the bumper crop, all right. Stick it in their savings account. And then the next year, farm as well. Because they just, they wanted the bumper crop and they didn't want to obey. God told them in Leviticus 25, this is what I want you to do. In Leviticus 26, it says, if you don't do it, I'll just remove you and give the land a rest. Okay, 490 years of ignoring divided by seven would be 70 years. And so he is just paying back a promise that said, if you do X, Y, and Z, sadly, I don't want to do that, but I will teach you a lesson. Because why? He's a father who disciplines for our own sake. And so I, I just noticed that it's just, just crazy. Sometimes you just need to get our attention because there's no other way. You know, I told you about the radiologist who called this 20 years ago, plus now uh, called me and told me I had a serious problem out of nowhere. You know the story. It was a random x-ray of my chest and he's all excited saying he saw something and I need a CAT scan. And while he's talking to me about a possible tumor, he called it a mass, I heard in my head, do I have your attention now? Well, I had had a falling out in ministry. It was very painful. I hardened my heart. I didn't want to go to church anymore. Didn't want to read my Bible. Yeah, it happens to pastors too. It was ugly and a nasty fallout. And I was treated, quite frankly, very badly. But it was no excuse to stop walking with God. So I, I was wandering. And then I get the phone call and I'll never forget it. God says, do I have, I could repeat it with them. Do I have your attention now? And I said, while the radiologist is babbling, in my mind, I answered God and said, yes, Lord, you have my attention. My whole life went right immediately back to normal. <laughs> we were back online. Thanks to what? Thanks to a SWAT, a good SWAT, and I needed it. I survived it too, so praise the Lord. It has a happy ending. <laughs> but, you know, I'm not so sure I would have if I wouldn't have cooperated. God just brings these things. He comes in and he says, I'm going to give you a 70-year time out, Israel. And when you seek me and, and, and call on me with all your heart, I'm going to bring you back. And they did. And he fulfilled his promise. And we see it coming to pass uh, now. For me, uh, the second thing I want to point out before we move uh, is, is this thing with God using pagan kings. This dude is an Iranian, Gentile, pagan king who lives a thousand miles from now defunct Jerusalem. What does he know? God doesn't need them to be Christians. God's working. He's God's sovereign. And he's using 
political people, he's using wackos and crazies. And he said, alive and well in the swamp in Washington. The, the Lord is working through. He is not the author of anything crazy. But God says, watch what I can do. Even with somebody like Nebuchadnezzar, who ended up repenting, and you will see him in heaven. He gets saved. Well, read the book of Daniel, or go online and hear the studies. That dude, at first he has a false, almost conversion, and then Nebuchadnezzar gets saved, for sure. God nearly had to kill him to do it. But, uh, but isn't that true of almost all of us? So, so I just wanted you to know, listen, you may be asking yourself tonight, who's, who's driving the bus that I'm on? Because it just seems crazy, you know? And this crazy bus driver, I'm in, not in control, I'm on this bus. Who's in charge? It doesn't matter. Because God knows you're on that bus and he's going to take care of that bus and use that bus driver for your good because he promised, I will cause all things on your bus. <laughs> So work for your good because you love me and are called according to my purpose. Whether, listen to me, whether you feel like it or not. Amen? That's how it is. Okay, so now God fulfilling his promise, stirring up hearts. I want to look at two and four, the edict. Okay, so here, first, amazingly, he acknowledges uh, that the God of Israel is the one. He gives glory to God, first of all. All right, so take a look at this. He says, um, this is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God, he's using God's, but when you see Lord, all caps, I've told you this before, it means it's Yahweh. Yahweh, or Jehovah, same thing, is God's covenant name. Why is it called covenant name? Because to Moses, he appears in the flaming bush, and he says, I am always with you. So there's a covenant, there's a promise to always be. So the shortened version of God's name is I am. I am your healer. I am the door. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection. So he just has the I am who I am kind of thing. And so he says the I am, you know, has asked me uh, to do this great thing. Now, is that... Where it all starts is to be able to know who God is and what he has for you, right? That's the first step. So he's saying, it's God who's put me on the throne, and he's got a job for me to do. That's pretty amazing stuff. So the edict begins by acknowledging God. He's given me a job to do, to build a temple. That's what he says. Uh, Now, how did he come to know that he says, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all everything so that appointed me, look at this, this pagan king appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem. Now, how does he know that? Well, look at the Lord stirred his heart up, it says. Now take a look at these two verses about his. Isaiah wrote about Cyrus, we can show that. By name, 100 years before Cyrus is born. Daniel is in Cyrus's administration. Daniel has the scroll of Isaiah and commentaries all over say, obviously, he got a hold of Isaiah and Jeremiah 
And so between Jeremiah 29, 10 and 11, that it's 70 years, and then Isaiah that says about Cyrus, he's my shepherd and will accomplish all that I please. He will save Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt, and of the temple, let its foundation be laid. 150 years before this dude is breathing. That should stir you up. It says Cyrus was moved by the Lord. That should be like, well, my name, I wasn't even born yet. Yeah, but God knew. God knew before the earth was. Look at the next one. Uh, in, in another verse, I will raise up Cyrus in my righteousness. I will make all his ways straight. He will rebuild my city and set my exiles free but not for a price or reward. In other words, he's not going to do it for any other reason, but because I want him to. That's amazing. You could go back to the word. Now, nothing, you know, like seeing your name written before you were born to stir you up a little. And so Cyrus found his destiny by reading the scriptures, and so will you. Wouldn't it be cool if you could look in the book like, like John the Baptist? said, I'm the one where it says a voice calling in the wilderness. I'm that guy. You know, sadly, Judas could have said, I'm in the Psalms where it says, even my, my best friend who ate bread with me has betrayed me. That verse is talking a thousand years before Judas is born about Judas. How about you? Are you in there? You're in there. For God so loved the world that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You're in there. That's you. Guess what? You're a whosoever, right? (laughs) And this is what I love. John gets a vision of the future. And he looks and sees around the throne a multitude of people praising God. It's not a vision, a make-believe vision. It's not a vision that's standing for something. He looks and sees ahead in time of the actual people who are actually there. He's seeing the reality of a moment that's yet to happen, but will happen with you standing there. In other words, John, if he could remember all those faces, has seen you already in heaven. Did you ever think about that? Yeah, I know. That's why I'm telling you. (laughs) I love that. I've been spotted already there. You know, so what do I got to worry about? Do you know how many times I have thought that thought? Is this that, relax. John already saw you. You're there. You're praising God. You're around the throne. (laughs) So praise the Lord. All right. So let's continue on. Now, so Cyrus says we're going to rebuild from the rubble there in Jerusalem, because that's what God wants me to do. So the edict continues, and he goes verse three and four. Now, don't worry, I, I'm moving slow for a reason. Guess what? There's 11 verses. So we're, we're just going to get to 11 verses. We're going to be, it's going to be okay. Tell your neighbor, it's going to be okay. Go ahead. There, there you go. Okay, here's the edict, three, th- three and four. Anyone of Jewish ancestry scattered in these parts now, he says, can apply for visas to return to Israel. You couldn't just leave. You couldn't go home. First of all, there was no home to go to. Nothing. He says, now you can apply. You can go. You don't even have to apply. And then he says, anyone of Jewish ancestry 
And when he says living in these parts, the word means resident aliens, all right? So uh, anyone who has a green card and you don't want to go back to your motherland, uh, uh, how about coughing up a few shekels? That's what he says there. Let's read it again. Uh, He says, anyone of his people among you, let him go up to Jerusalem and build. You can go now. All right, and then he says, and the people of any place where survivors may now be living are to provide him with silver and gold, goods and livestock, and with free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. So I like that. (laughs) He says, and feel free for those of you who are not going to get up. These are second and third generation. They are the children and grandchildren of those who were taken captive. Now, Daniel was like a teen. When he went, so he's in his 90s. So there are a few of those left. But mostly it's their kids and their grandkids. And they have jobs and they have families and they speak Farsi. And not everybody wanted to go. Only 40,000 wanted to go back. And the rest, he says, that's fine, but I want you to pitch in. Now, uh, notice the text. He says, you are to... It's a command. He expects them. This is a command. You're going to give, but I'm not going to tell you how much. I really like that because it's so biblical. It really is. It's New Testament. Here's what the New Testament says about giving. 2 Corinthians 9, it says, Remember this, whoever sows sparingly... Oh, I think I have that. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously, giving, will also reap generously. This is the Bible, not a pastor. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. God, the the command is, Christians give. You you must give. God expects that. Don't come before me, he says, with empty-handed. You bring something. I'm not going to tell you how much to bring. Christians, traditionally, 10%, they get that from the Old Testament. What they don't realize is actually it was about 23% the tithe, the Old Testament tithe. But 10%'s a nice starting place, and it's where most Christians are, right? But uh, we are freed up to give more than that. We're to be giving in keeping with our ability and our incomes, and as the Lord leads. And so... This is what he's saying here. He's saying, uh, God's got a job for me to do, and you're going to help. You're either going to go and do it, praise the Lord, or you're going to be financed by Jews who have an interest there. He's saying, look, it's your people. They're your friends. They're your family. It's your temple. It's your so-called God and your religion. You're Jews, aren't you? Then pitch in and help. And so he gives a list of how they can. You can go back uh, to the verse. Let's finish up by finishing up chapter one. So the edict goes forth and so do the people. So five through eight says this. Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin, I want you to think of these estates like New Mexico and Arizona. All right, because they're next to each other and they're the Southwest. This is South Israel, all right? So they're just states. So the family and the heads of those states, and they're related together. And the priests and Levites, the pastors and those who work in the ministry, everyone whose heart God had moved, 
prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord that's called the temple there. All their neighbors assisted them with articles of silver and gold, goods and livestock, and with valuable gifts, in addition to all the freewill offerings. Wow, they're doing well. Verse 7. Moreover, King Cyrus brought out the articles belonging to the temple of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar stole from Jerusalem and had placed in the temple of his God in Babylon. Cyrus, king of Persia, had them brought by Mithridath, the treasurer. Now, if you're looking for a baby name, I, <laughs> I suggest you avoid that one. You could call him Mithy. <laughs> Who counted it out to Sheshbazar. Now, there's a better one. The prince of Judah. All right, let's talk about the edict going on now. So, note takers... Sorry, the first point was the edict. The second one is the response here, five through eight. So what we're given here is an inventory of stuff that was either given to them to help or just taken with them. We're going to take a look at that. Uh, Second will come in chapter two and a, a very long list of everybody who went, all the family numbered up. And so we're going to sum that up next week and... uh, Make some, get some insights that way. So it's not just the Persian king who's inspired by God. Look at your verse five. God's spirit is stirring up in the Hebrew. He's getting into their hearts and mixing things up, firing them up a little bit. And that's how any kind of restoration is ever going to happen. And so these second and third generation Hebrews, like I said, 40,000 of them, um, are now going to get prepared to go. So let's take a look now at the text. So it definitely would take an, an inspiration in your heart to want to go and leave your comfortable home, your friends and your family. I really, I think the journey was long, dangerous and expensive. They had no proper homes waiting for them, no roads, no orchards. They're all overgrown. There's the, the wall is in shambles. There's no city. There's no city institution. There's nothing there. How can you just want to pick up? How many of you are like that? You're like, wow, if God's in and he's stirring our hearts and he's going to provide a way to do it, I would be one of the ones to go to Jerusalem. Some people are the ones who want to stay behind and help and finance. Others want to go. And so these people, wow. It's pretty amazing. You know, who's ever heard of a country that was totally destroyed and then almost a century later, it comes back to life? Well, see, that's God's super sign is Israel because it's not just here that God regathers people and brings them back because even when they come back, they're under Persian rule. Then it's going to go to... I forget who gets them next. I think it's the Greeks. And then it's going to be the Romans. And then it's going to be the Turks. All right. For 25 centuries, Israel never is back. But God said in all of these prophecies, I will gather you from the four corners of the world and you will be a legitimate nation. So up for 2,500 years, scoffers have said, where's Israel? There's no Israel. 
Oh, I'm going to regather everybody from the four corners of the world. Well, then in 1948, on May 14th, guess what happened? The prophecy of Isaiah in chapter 66 says, can a nation be born in a day? But that's exactly what happened. And that's what Isaiah was saying, that in a day, from nothing, after 2,500 years, from this time, Israel never was considered their own sovereign nation, never once. That's a long time. And for God to say, now watch this. And he gathered them from, 19, from the 1900s. There were about 4,000 Jews living in that tract of land. By the end of World War I and World War II, there were 800,000. It was God's sovereign hand taking Jews from all over the world. And then in one moment, boom, they're a nation. It's God's super sign to the world. And so the expatriates there were, were, were told, you know, they went told to give and they went above and beyond. And so you take a, a look at that. So here's in the list. Livestock for starter flocks were given. Uh, gold and silver, valuable gifts, in addition to financing in free will offerings. That's really cool. Here's a quote about their giving as you're reading the text about what they gave, uh, those who stay behind. The Jewish people, the family of God, needed to pull together in light of painful devastation. Destroyed... Uh, their, homes, their homeland was destroyed. They were starting the tedious process of starting all over again from scratch. And God put it on their hearts to give. The family of God gave over and above what was expected. Do you see uh, something familiar here? Uh, through the fires and through the 40 uh, some odd homes that were lost, God did the same thing he did there, and he always does. He stirs up the hearts of people to give. And what has happened in this church, in this community, is really nothing short of God stirring up people's hearts. I told you about the orphanage in India that we support. They raised $7,000 for the kids of those 40 homes. And we were able, with that $7,000, to divide it up equally. They, I told you about this. Uh, each kid got to spend 350 bucks uh, on clothes or whatever they lost. And, and, and it's just starter money. So much donations. I'm making the list here like the list here in your text. So many cash donations came in that for 40 families, each family could receive $2,000 to stabilize them, right? So $2,000 isn't a lot of money when you've lost your home. Let me show you the home. I'm just, just, I took a picture the other day. This is a picture. We just, we went up to Fountain Grove and I just stopped. Barb and I were taking pictures. I took this picture. $2,000 is nothing. But when it's coming from a church for 40 people, in the beginning, when you don't have anything, you have to go out and buy clothes and all of that. What a gesture of love that a church is able to do that without fundraising. I never asked anybody to give anything. Never. And it just, we put up a page and it says, donate if you wish. And people did it on their own. 
But more than that, above the free will offering, just like your text says, God stirred up people to open their homes. I got a voicemail at the church the other day that says, you don't know me, I don't go to your church, I don't go to any church. But our family lost everything, and a couple from your congregation, who we didn't even know, opened their home and took care of us and are taking care of us. And we don't have the means to bless them. She didn't use that word. But maybe the church can do something like that. So we're on that. But it goes on and on and on. Meals and services. Lawyers are stepping up. Maybe you need some help with the fine print. And tax people and insurance brokers and realtors and everybody in that field who are Christians in our fellowship are coming forth because God has stirred up their hearts because they want to help us rebuild. And it's the same sort of thing that you see in your text as we go back to that text. Gift cards, we still have them. We can't get rid of them, (laughs) all right? If you're a fire victim and you need some help, would you please help us to help you? Let us help you, all right? And so uh, all sorts of things. I could go on and on, just like verse 6. Wow. And, and what I see happening isn't a praise to people's, the goodness of people's hearts. Though I'm not taking anything away from them. I'm just saying, as it says in the text, it wasn't just the Persian king. He stirred up the hearts of the people to rebuild and to finance above what he was asking. And that's what God has done here in our communities. Our communities take note. And on more than a few occasions, people have said the fire and the response and the love is drawing my unsaved loved one to the Lord. Do you see? That's what happens. It's not a place to look at how good and kind we are. But God is stirring our hearts up to good works so that Christ can draw all men unto him so that the gospel could go forth and be saved. And there will be people you meet in heaven who could have perished but for Tubbs Fire and its effect and impact on people's souls, showing them the fragility of life and the love of Christ to take something terrible and turn it around. And this is what's happening in the text and right out here in the pews, as it were. And so closing out chapter one, he says in verse seven, moreover, that always means Even more significant than that, he says, King Cyrus brought out the articles belonging to the temple of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar ripped off. (laughs) Seventy years before, Nebuchadnezzar comes in and he he takes what's valuable, the people and the stuff. And and what they used to do is when you conquered a, a city or a place, you take their religious items and, and you and lead the parade back to Iraq with, guess what, all the stuff, right? Now, if he could have found the Ark of the Covenant, they would have taken it. But the Philistines tried that, remember? When they conquered the Israelites in one of the battles, they grabbed the the Ark of the Covenant. Hey, we got it, and we're going to park it in our temple, just like he did here. Took the stuff, put it in the temple. So they parked the Ark of the Covenant in Dagon's temple, 1 Samuel 5, read it tonight. It was not good for Dagon. 
That's all I have to say. And every Philistine that lived, <laughs> it's got a funny. I, I hope you get the version that says the right words in there because they were afflicted with a problem. And I'll just leave it at that. Now you got to read your Bibles tonight. Oh, King Cyrus. Okay, so here's what Cyrus does. He has enough sense to think maybe God wants his stuff back. All right, so if you guys are on your way, you're going anyway, and gee whiz, you know, all the stuff that, that my predecessor's father took, because his predecessor, and here's where we're going to tie this all in together like only God can do, because those articles, let me show you the list of the articles, because it's important. Gold dishes, silver dishes, silver pans, gold bowl, bowl, bowls, <laughs> matching silver bowls, and other articles, a, a thousand of those. Now, if you count them up, they don't add up to 5,400. He's saying they itemize the larger pieces. They don't count every little thing in the set. So a total of 5,400 articles of gold and silver were given to an accountant to inventory and then given to the governor, the, 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 the governor-to-be, governor-elect of uh, Judah or Jerusalem. Uh, and so these valuable articles is what made ministry possible in the temple. You don't list things that are not valuable. Like, the, you know, I got 17 pebbles in my backyard. You know, these things are like, let's say somebody came in and robbed the church. Robbed the church. They took all the sound equipment, technical devices, all the flat screen TVs. There's about four or five of them around here. All the computers. Do you have any idea how many computers are, are in this place? A lot. I don't know if we hit 100,000. There's probably about that much in sound equipment and computers and all of that. Easy, right? Now, if any of you are thieves, <laughs> <laughs> the thoughts that go through my head when I'm preaching, <laughs> unbelievable. So to contemporize it, he took valuable things, and but watch how God works this out. Some of those valuable things are famous for the demise of Babylon and the conquering of Cyrus to become the new emperor. Something about those articles, let me remind you. Daniel chapter 5. Nebuchadnezzar dumped all the stuff in the temple, but he died. He died in faith, and that's good. But his son took over, Belshazzar. Belshazzar wanted to have a feast in honor of himself, and he's filthy rich. And so he invited, I don't know, hundreds of royal subjects, you know, royal, I should say, nobles. And they had this immoral drunken bash, but it wasn't good enough for him. So what he does at the Hanging Gardens of Babylon and his big party, he says, let's get drunk using the golden goblets from the temple that my father sacked 70 years ago. And so they go into the, the pagan temple there and they get the golden goblets that you're reading about. 
and they get drunk using them, praising their own gods and their idols, toasting them with God's goblets that were used for the Old Testament version of communion. And God said in Daniel chapter 5, that's it. And when you exhaust the patience of Almighty God, that's saying something. All right? So the while they're getting drunk with those very goblets, a hand of human fingers appears and writes on the plaster a coded, encrypted saying, many, many, tekel, parson. And the poor guy is quaking, Nebuchadnezzar's son, quaking, and the blood drains from his face, and his knees are knocking. He's like, who can tell me what this means? And they say, hey, Daniel, get the old man in here, and, and, and he's got wisdom. And in comes Daniel, and he says, I will give you so much wealth. And Daniel says, you can keep your gifts. I'll do this one for free. <laughs> and he says... Here's the, here's the thing, O king. He says, your father went through this whole thing with God, a whole struggle, and then he humbled himself, and you knew everything, yet you continue in your rebellion against God. And this, my friend, praising God with his cup, praising the gods with his own cup, that's the last straw. So meany, meany means says, your days have been numbered and have come to an end. Tekel, he says, you've been weighed in the balances and found wanting, wanting, lacking. What? Lacking of relationship with God, repentance, faith, goodness. All right? And then parson. I forget what that one means. You with me on that? Many, many tekel parson. Out with the Babylonians. In come the Persians. And that night, he was assassinated. And God stirred up Cyrus. So the articles are involved in the downfall of Babylon and the uprising of King Cyrus, who's now going to take those goblets and bring them back for their proper usage in Jerusalem. Look at this. Only God can do stuff like that. And he signs it, Yahweh. <laughs> you know, <laughs> just, just this beautiful picture of how everything gets tied together. One person told me once, he said, when I read the Bible, I believe in God because of the ma majestic quality and the supernatural way God weaves life together that it's above and beyond any ability of any man. Amen? Amen? And so the takeaway here in chapter one then, I have it written down here. It's a lot of glue here as well. I make a lot of mistakes, okay? Here's the takeaway. So maybe you've been through something that's kind of wiped you out a little bit, knocked the wind out of you. God's a restorer. God's a rebuilder. He comes alongside. He stirs up our hearts to give us what we need. He brings in the support. And he says to every hurting heart tonight, listen, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to prosper you, to give you a hope. Not to harm you, to give you a hope in a future. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for this beautiful chapter. Now we're underway in this 
wonderful study of rebuilding after ruin. We, we all need that, Lord. Refresh us with your truth, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 6.30 and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at calvertherock.org.